This is Stacey Harbaugh and Marcus Slayton with your local news coming to you live via the WORT studios in downtown Madison. Here's tonight's headlines. The field of candidates running for the Republican spot in November's gubernatorial election grew again today as GOP lawmaker Timothy Ramkin announced his candidacy, sort of. The Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reports the representative from Campbell Sport launched a campaign website on Wednesday, but it has since been taken down, and as of broadcast, the website website still sits vacant. Ramthun has long claimed that the 2020 presidential election was invalid in Wisconsin and attempted to overturn the state's election results with no legal basis. Ramthun already has two people in his corner, MyPillow CEO and conspiracy theorist Mike Lindell, as well as former President Donald Trump. The other Republicans running for governor are former Lieutenant Governor Rebecca Cleefish, Kevin Nicholson, and Jonathan Winchman. A federal judge restored federal protections for gray wolves in most of the country today. The ruling was made by a California district judge who said the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service had not shown wolf populations could be sustained without the protection of the Endangered Species Act. This comes after criticism of wolf hunts across the country, including in Wisconsin, where hunters went over the state hunting quota back in early 2021. A spokesperson for the State Department of Natural Resources declined to comment on the Wisconsin State Journal or to the Wisconsin State Journal until the agency had a chance to fully absorb the ruling. The Madison Water Utility has applied for federal funding to help fund PFAS testing in city wells. The State Journal reports that the funds were first announced by Governor Tony Evers earlier this week and will be provided by the Environmental Protection Agency to help communities test for the forever chemicals in water supplies. While the EPA doesn't regulate PFAS chemicals, the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources is looking to finalize its standards by the end of the month. Madison and Dane County will add millions of dollars to their communal emergency rental assistance program. The program, called Dane Core 2.0, will receive $35 million to be provided by bo- to be provided by both the city and the county. The Capital Times reports the program is for renters struggling during the COVID-19 pandemic and will help pay for rent. Applicants are able to access funds through community partners, such as Urban Triage, the Tenant Resource Center, and Community Action Coalition. Health officials are asking people to check on the lettuce in their fridge after 17 people contracted listeria. The Associated Press reports that the Dole prepackaged salads have been linked to the outbreak that has left two people dead, including one person from Wisconsin. The Department of Health Services says that it is important to clean your refrigerator if you have the product in your fridge, as listeria can survive in cold temperatures and easily spread to other foods. If you have dull prepackaged salad in your fridge, please toss it immediately. And now for today's COVID numbers. There were 2,508 confirmed cases of the virus yesterday in Wisconsin, with a seven-day average for the state sitting at 22,537 cases per day. There was one confirmed death from the virus yesterday, bringing the total number of COVID deaths in Wisconsin to 11,533.
Here in Dane County, there were 400 confirmed cases of the virus yesterday, with 121 people currently hospitalized from the virus. In schools, there were 270 cases of the virus across the Madison School District last week, uh, more than 50% decrease in cases from the previous week. And now on to today's top stories. Last October, students at Madison East High School walked out of classes and demanded that school administrators take action to prevent sexual violence. Now their demands are being partially met as students lead new education and training for the East High community. WORT reporter Andy Barrow has the story. Teachers, students, and administrators at Madison East High School are receiving new training on sexual violence. In a twist, though, this time it's students doing the teaching as a new sexual violence focus group works to educate the school. The effort to address rape and other forms of sexual violence began in October, when students walked out to protest administrative inaction following the alleged rape of a teenager who attended the school. East High senior Tamaya Travis spoke at the walkout, where she listed demands from students and teachers. Teachers, students, and admin are to receive trauma-informed training every year by the Rape Crisis Center. Meetings need to include real student testimony. Discuss power imbalances because our principal has decided to ignore every cry for help that we have given. At the time, students also railed against their then-principal, Sean Levy, who was quickly reassigned and replaced by interim principal, Mickey Smith, weeks after the walkouts. Yesterday, Smith sent out an email praising the students leading the effort to better inform the school community about sexual violence. In that email, Smith also announced new training aids, including student-created posters and video PSAs. Students are also building a training module to inform teachers about the correct procedure for reporting incidents of sexual violence. Missy Mail is a co-executive director at the Rape Crisis Center. She credits East High students with coordinating the effort. Uh, we're working really closely with those students. Uh, the students are absolutely incredible. They are driven. They are so smart um, and so courageous. Uh, they tell us what they need and they come up with the tools that they want to use and they tell the superintendent and the principal and we just help them develop them. At the same time, Mail acknowledged that the rollout of the materials has proceeded more slowly than some students would like. She adds that she encourages anyone who has experienced sexual violence and needs support to contact the Rape Crisis Center. Their contact information and more on the story can be found at wartfm.org. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Andy Barrow. The COVID-19 pandemic amplified long-standing issues in Wisconsin's child care system. Now, experts are highlighting new ways to rebuild the state's child care framework for long-term success. Jonah Chester from the Wisconsin News Connection has more. The pandemic has exacerbated long-standing issues in Wisconsin's child care infrastructure, and experts are weighing how to restructure the system to provide equitable care for kids and fair pay for caregivers. According to the University of Wisconsin, half of teachers who are based in child care centers plan to leave the field in the next five years. Alejandra Ros-Pilars with UW-Madison School of Social Work says nearly 40% of family care providers also plan to leave in that same time frame. Across both groups, the most common reason for wanting to leave the field other than retirement 
was to find a job with better compensation or with more opportunity for advancement. Rose Pilar says the median wage for a center-based teacher is $13 an hour and less than $8 an hour for a family provider. Child care centers are larger operations, while family care providers are typically smaller local businesses. Rose Pilar says the state's rural counties saw a nearly 20% decline in licensed child care providers from 2005 to 2019, and families of color and immigrant families were more likely than white families to live in child care deserts. Anna Markowitz with the University of California, Los Angeles, says teacher turnover can have a significant impact on kids' behavioral and academic development. As she explained in a seminar to Wisconsin lawmakers on Tuesday, building bonds is critical when it comes to teaching young kids. So children who lose out on these relationships due to teacher turnover essentially lose out on learning time, and they also may struggle to manage the emotions of that loss. They, they lost a person they cared for, and they don't quite understand why. Among other solutions, UW-Madison School of Public Policy proposes supplemental earning programs for teachers who meet certain criteria and establishing professional development and credentialing initiatives with an eye towards long-term career development. For the Wisconsin News Connection, I'm Jonah Chester. Find our eight trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org. It's now 6.16 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Last year, Wisconsin labor activists were thrilled when the U.S. Postal Service awarded a contract to Wisconsin-based Oshkosh Defense to build their new fleet of USPS vehicles, which would bring over 1,000 union jobs to the state. But instead of producing those vehicles in Wisconsin, Oshkosh Defense created a new production plant in South Carolina, leaving Wisconsin production plants in the cold. Stephen Greenhouse is a labor writer for The Guardian, where he published his newest article regarding the situation. He spoke with WORT producer Nate Wegehout earlier today. I'm here with Stephen Greenhouse, labor writer for The Guardian, which is where he published his newest article, Building Back Worse, Wisconsin's Fight Over the Production of U.S. Postal Service Vehicles. Stephen, thank you so much for talking with me here today. Nice to be here, Nate. So I want to just start things off with some background for people who maybe aren't familiar with the issue. What's going on right now with Oshkosh Defense? So Oshkosh Defense won this huge contract to the United States Postal Service to build a new generation, the next generation of postal vehicles. And it's, you know, the contract is going to be up to 10 or 11 B billion dollars. It will replace all these 20, 30, 20 year and 30 year old vehicles. It's going to be between a hundred, between 50,000 and 165,000 vehicles. And people in Wisconsin, people in Oshkosh, you know, hailed that Oshkosh Defense won the agreement. They thought this was going to bring over a thousand new jobs to Wisconsin, to Oshkosh. And then lo and behold, Oshkosh Defense announced, sorry, folks, we are deciding to build these new vehicles in South Carolina. And the Postal Service, you know, said, we can't do anything about it. That's the decision of, of of Oshkosh Defense. Oshkosh Defense said uh, there's this empty warehouse down in South Carolina. We could start uh, making the vehicles right away. But folks in Wisconsin feel betrayed and they want Oshkosh Defense to be loyal to the state of Wisconsin on this. 
And did what was Oshkosh Defense's reason for moving the plant to South Carolina? What did they say was their reason, at least? They said the main reason was uh, that there's this big, empty, it's actually a former Rite Aid drug warehouse that's empty, and they thought we could move in right away with aid from the South Carolina government and start production this year in the hope of starting to you know, finish the vehicles um, for 20, you know, a lot of vehicles for 2023. And it kind of hinted that there wasn't enough uh, space in Oshkosh and Wisconsin. And I interviewed a lot of workers in Oshkosh, a lot of workers in Wisconsin, and they said, bull, there are a lot of facilities in Wisconsin that could easily accommodate this. And we in Wisconsin have, you know, the experience in making vehicles at Oshkosh Defense. So why do they need to go to South Carolina? And you won't be surprised that a lot of workers and union leaders and politicians in Wisconsin said, it's very unfortunate that Oshkosh Defense is doing it. It's moving this into a lower wage state. It's moving this into an anti-union state. That when uh, President Biden said that as we move to a greener economy and move towards electrical vehicles, we will build back better. We will promise to have higher wage union jobs. And uh, people like Tammy Baldwin, Senator Tammy Baldwin, Stephanie Bloomingdale, the president of the Wisconsin AFL-CIO, said, "There's something wrong here. This is not building back better. This is, uh, you know, we're going to result in lower wage non-union jobs in South Carolina when." These jobs, they feel, should be in Wisconsin. Now, you mentioned politicians sort of reacting to this, and probably the one that's probably gotten the most press here in Wisconsin has been Senator Ron Johnson, who said that last week he said that he was not going to fight for Oshkosh defense to build the fleet here in Wisconsin. And it was also noted by the Wisconsin Examiner that he received over $50,000 from Oshkosh Corporation in the last election. So just sort of briefly, what is Ron Johnson's involvement with this situation? Why did he say that he doesn't want to fight for the fleet here in Wisconsin. So, Nate, you know, so I've been writing about economics and labor issues uh, for the New York Times and after for like 35, 40 years. I was the New York Times Midwest business correspondent. I covered the closing of the GM plant in Janesville. I've written stories about Oshkosh Bagash. I've written a ton of stories in Wisconsin. I've written about companies in, you know, and governments in Illinois and Iowa and Minnesota fighting really hard to prevent factories from closing and moving elsewhere. And this is the first time in 30, 40 years I've ever seen a politician say, you know, I don't mind if this factory, if the federal contract goes out of my state to another state. And that's what Ron Johnson said. He said, and I quote here, um, it does, it does, uh, it's not like we don't have enough jobs here already in Wisconsin, he said. The biggest problem we have in Wisconsin right now is employers not being able to find enough work. And he also said, I wouldn't assert myself to demand that anything be manufactured here using federal funds in Wisconsin. And it's true that, you know, uh, there's a labor shortage in many industries nowadays, industries are having a hard time to, to hire, hire. But a lot of people are criticizing Ron Johnson saying, well, just because the economy is good right now doesn't mean we will need more jobs you know, next year and the year after and the year after. And, and states like Wisconsin and Michigan and Minnesota and Pennsylvania, Ohio, they've lost a ton of manufacturing jobs over the past two or three decades. So I can imagine a lot of people in Wisconsin saying, this is great. We can get a thousand more manufacturing jobs. So why is the senator from Wisconsin who's supposed to represent the interest of Wisconsin saying, hey, folks, 
it's just fine that these thousand jobs are moving down to South Carolina. And it's not, it's not just a private sector decision. These are you know, jobs being paid for by the federal government that a lot of Wisconsinites lobbied for. So, you know, a lot of people are angry and disgusted with Ron Johns for not going to bat for Wisconsinites on this. You know, Stephanie Bloomingdale, the head of the Wisconsin AFL-CIO, you know, she issued a statement saying, Senator Johnson has turned his back on the people of Wisconsin. He's so out of touch that he won't even lift a finger to help secure over a thousand good union jobs for his hometown of Oshkosh. So moving back to the issue itself, I know the United Auto Workers Union has, they have spoken out about this whole thing. What did they have to say about this situation? So uh, Oshkosh Defense, uh, Nate is unionized. It's been unionized since like since the 1930s with the United Auto Workers, and it has good relations with its union. And again, the union was like shocked and disappointed that these jobs, which had expected to come to Oshkosh, are instead going to South Carolina, which has the lowest unionization rate of any of the 50 states. And they feel Oshkosh Defense is kind of betraying the state of Wisconsin. And they've been trying to persuade the United States Postal Service to change its mind. The Postal Service says, as long as the contract goes, stays in the United States, we're not going to get involved. And the uh, auto workers union, like some environmental groups, said, uh, unfortunately, uh, the Postal Service, along with Oscar Defense, the Postal Service hasn't done an environmental impact statement study examining how this contract would affect the environment. And, you know, a lot of Wisconsin politicians, labor unions and others have been pressuring the Biden administration to try to get the Postal Service to change its mind. And the Postal Service says, sorry. And you remember the Postal Service is now sort of an independent agency. But lo and behold, last week, the the Environmental Protection Agency, you know, part of the federal government, said, uh, issued a formal objection to the uh Postal Service's contract with Oshkosh Defense, it said far too many of the 100, potentially 165,000 postal vehicles are going to be gas-powered. And they said, you know, in this day and age, as we're moving towards electrical vehicles, you know, far more, maybe even all of the new postal vehicles should be elect, elect, electric. And, uh, you know, the Postal Service has said that the, the gas-powered vehicles, and said 90% of these new vehicles would be gas-powered, said that the mileage they get is only 8.6 miles a gallon, which is only a teensy-weensy bit more than the 30-year-old postal vehicles that they'll be replacing. And a lot of folks are saying, that's outrageous. You know, uh, with global warming, uh, you know, uh, we need to do far more to uh, reduce uh, carbon, carbon dioxide output, output, and they feel the Postal Service isn't doing nearly enough, including the Environmental Protection Agency, also felt the Postal Service isn't doing nearly enough. So the Environmental Protection Agency called on the Postal Service to do a full environmental impact study of how these gas power vehicles would, you know, affect uh, the climate. And they pressured, urged the Postal Service to look at the possibility of having 90, 100 percent of these new vehicles to be electric. So, Stephen, we're running up against the clock here. Do you just have any final thoughts on this matter? Where do you think that this could be going next? What's next for all of this? So, uh, I think 
you know, the Postal Service, Oscar's Defense, are feeling a lot of pressure, and and you know a lot, you know, and, and they don't like the pressure, but they also are somewhat embarrassed about changing their mind. So there's a tug of war, and I think the Biden administration really wants the production to be done in Wisconsin. You know, they don't want you know all these Wisconsinites and people in the industrial Midwest angry at the administration for having this contract go to South Carolina. And the Biden administration says very rightly, we do not control the Postal Service. It's run by Trump appointees. They're the ones who awarded this contract. Republicans control the Postal Service, and they seem happy to send this contract to South Carolina. And and the Biden administration wants to name new, piece, new people who run the Postal Service, and presumably they might put pressure on Oshkosh Defense to move the contract back to Wisconsin. So you know, there's a lot of infighting, tug of war going on right now. And I won't be surprised if in a year or two, Oshkosh Defense, you know, under the pressure of the Biden administration, moves the thousand jobs of production back to Wisconsin. But maybe not. There's a lot of and uh, there's a lot of inertia in this to uh, maybe continue to do this in South Carolina. But I think, meanwhile, Nate, a lot of people in Wisconsin are going to uh, make their voices heard, saying it's unfair that this, you know, Wisconsin company that's always done production in Wisconsin and that seemed to indicate it's going to produce, produce this in Wisconsin is suddenly, you know, deciding to do production in South Carolina instead. I've been speaking with Stephen Greenhouse, labor writer for The Guardian, where you can read his newest article, Building Back Worse. Stephen, thank you so much for talking with me today. Um, my pleasure. And you're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Please stay with us. We've got lots more stories coming up. Public officials question who's paying for pizza on Isthmus on Wart and the intersection between printmaking and music on Radio Chipstone. But first, we'll take a quick break, check in on some world headlines, and we'll be right back. Time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton, here with Stacy Harbaugh. Thanks for joining us. The city of Madison has debated the use of body-worn cameras on police officers for years and is scheduled to reach a final decision on the matter in April. Tonight, a meeting is being held by the police department to help inform the public about body cameras, but the issue comes from who is funding these meetings. Dylan Brogan is the senior reporter at Isthmus, and he joins WORT producer Nate Wiggyhout to discuss the matter on this week's Isthmus on Board. Happening just about right now is a meeting between the Madison Police Department and community members about whether or not to equip police officers with body-worn cameras in Madison. But what they didn't openly discuss was who was paying for those meetings. Exxon, who manufactures body cameras and tasers, I'm joined now by Dylan Brogan, senior reporter for the Isthmus, who broke the story yesterday. Dylan, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you. So let's just sort of start things off with who is Axon and what do they do? Well, they originally made tasers, but they've gotten into the body-worn camera industry. And But basically, it's a company out of Arizona that provides equipment to law enforcement. 
So, and without getting too much into the weeds, just to get a little bit yeah. more background information, what is the purpose of uh, the meeting tonight as well as the other meetings that are taking place? Yeah, so, it, you know, this all happened this week on February 7th, so what was that, Monday, uh, MPD puts out basically a public invitation to the community, right? It's labeled, you're, you're invited, MPD hosting roundtable discussion on body-worn cameras, and, uh, you know, they build it as uh, an honest and facilitated discussion about body-worn cameras. And this all comes about as, you know, the city, once again, is considering whether to launch a pilot program for a year to equip about 40 officers, a little bit more on, in the North Precinct, with these body-worn cameras. Uh, the city's been debating it for about six years, and uh, I think we're the largest municipality that doesn't have uh, body-worn cameras for all of our officers. Just the SWAT team has it. So tonight's event at the UW uh, Memorial Union, uh, there's going to be pizza there. And it was sort of billed as, hey, we're going to have guests and there will be patrol officers and we're going to all we're going to see presentations and there's going to be small discussion. Um, but what, what, what wasn't at all clear was that Axon uh, and I've contacted them. They basically said their community impact team. This is the body worn camera company. They're running the show. Uh, they're the ones who paid for the room. They're the ones who paid for the pizza. And uh, an alder, alder Keith Furman, um, communicated with the chief in, in a few emails about how he thought it was, you know, just not transparent to invite the community to this community meeting that's being run by a company that obviously is pro-body cam. They make them. And, and in addition to just uh, hosting it and paying for it, there, you know, in order for the public to sign up for these meetings, you have to RSVP. You actually have to use like a survey form on uh, the body cam company's website, and that's for a meeting that's happening uh, tonight, uh, that's going right now, and also a virtual meeting that's happening. A little, I think it's on the seventeenth. So, tell me about how you found out about all this stuff that seems like sure. that's sort of an interesting thing how did you know that about the pizza paid by axon how did you know that was happening um well i'll admit that initially i did notice the survey that was linked to axon but it, I, this actually came kind of an anonymous tip i was forward this email thread that was sent to a lot of um city leaders uh including that's how i got the emails between um alder Furman and in Chief Barnes, but there was, you know, there were a lot of people on there, including several members of the mayoral staff and the city attorney. So um, I guess I don't want to say more than that. But anyway, there were, uh, I think it's safe to say now that Alder uh, Keith Furman, uh, you know, did his job as an alder and trying to just look into this and, and was concerned by the chief's response of, hey, we're not doing anything wrong here. And, you know, uh, and really what the alder... In the, and Keith Furman even said, like, hey, it's okay if uh, this body-worn camera company wants to demonstrate their the equipment and have questions about it. Um, but, you know, we should go about this in a transparent way. And, and he also expressed concerns that, you know, for a supposedly public meeting that you had to use this private company's website and give them your email address, um, you know, he, he thought – he thought it could have been handled in a better way. But I think the important thing is, is MPD tried to act like this was their meeting with the community, and it's really a, a, being run by Axon uh, and their community impact team, which apparently goes all over the country and does these demonstrations. And what did, did you find out what that community impact team is? What, what are they? 
Well, I I mean I think they go I think they do what they say they 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 host conversations uh, between you know with law enforcement agencies um, and the public about why body cams are good and so if it's an honest and facilitated discussion. Um, you know, you'd think there would be, you just can't have that. I mean, it's sort of like, um, you know, uh, the people, if you go to a meeting about a timeshare, they want to sell you a timeshare. So, uh, and you know, not so much as that they're involved at all. It's just that the MPD wasn't uh, very open and honest about it. And and then uh, there's also another company, Panasonic. You've probably heard of them. Um, they are uh, they're also having an event, uh, part of this body-worn camera community discussion series that MPD is doing. And it was a little bit more um, just honest about what was happening. There, I mean, the, the description for that event was Panasonic representatives are going to be at the Madison Police District Training Center, and they're going to show you how the technology works. And, you know, I think there would be less concern um, if you know, these other meetings were labeled as such. From what it sounds like, they are contributing financially with the room and the pizza. Well, and, and running the, I mean, that was okay. what's funny. Like after the fact, I emailed the company and they got back to me and all of a sudden it was like, oh yeah, this is our meeting. You know, we're hosted by our community impact team. So why, why does the police department, did you ever find out why the police department is going through these channels to hold these meetings? Um, well, I know Chief Barnes is very pro body cam, and that uh, is a little bit of a difference in, than perhaps Chief Koval back in the, a few years ago, when I would say MPD wasn't ever against body cams, but maybe they were just a little less, um, they're more neutral about it. And Madison is unique uh, in that it hasn't, it's been very skeptical about the use of body worn cameras as a, as a tool for law enforcement to keep them accountable. And there's been a lot of pushback that, and they fall in the criticism. I would say fall in three basic areas. There's concern about like um, immigrant communities um, that they're going to be afraid to call the police because you know that footage might be turned over to ICE or something. So in domestic violence situations, so there's some privacy issues. Then there's concerns about just MPD already has the biggest city budget and body cameras are expensive and um, you know and there's some there's some reluctance to contribute even more to to the, in terms of budgetary requirements and then I'd say the third is that um, and there is somewhat some data behind it is that you know um, when you have the ability to turn the cameras on and off is it really a tool for accountability and so. Figuring out the right policy and how to do this right, um, you know, Matt. There's been a committee that spent years studying this, um, and I would just say it's just it, it is interesting how Madison city leaders have been very reluctant to move forward with this, even with the pilot program. And this would, you know, that's only a one-year thing and is a relatively small cost. Uh, in in city budget wise, but it's still about one hundred and fifty thousand dollars just for a year. And just to be clear, Panasonic um, is the company that the SWAT team members the, who have body cameras. That's where they come from now, and also the dashboard cams. And Axon, um, the company that you know is really mentioned in the article frequently, is you know they supply uh, MPD with tasers. So that they're they both have relationships with with the department. 
So we're running up right up against the clock. Do you have just any final thoughts on any of this? Yeah. Like um, well, I, these public meetings that the MPD made a big deal about inviting people to and really trying to s- start a debate and uh, gain some support for body cams um, as a tool for transparency, it's hard to say that that was very effective now because of the way it was handled. So it's one of those things, right? I've been speaking with Dylan Brogan, the senior reporter for the Isthmus, who broke the story on today's body camera meeting yesterday. You can read that full story online over at the Isthmus website. Dylan, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you. It's 6.42 p.m., and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Jonathan Hitchcock is a professor of art and printmaking at UW-Madison. He's also a musician. His latest works are on display in a new exhibit entitled Intercambios, Art, Stories, and Comunidad, currently in the Ruth Davis Design Gallery in the Nancy Nicholas Hall on the UW-Madison campus. In this edition of Radio Chipstone, Hitchcock tells contributor Jennifer Fields about his work, the exhibit, and plays her a few tunes. To me, this is about togetherness and working together. And on one level, we were thinking about this in relationship to travel back and forth and collaboration and uh, relationship of cultural experiences of where we come from our backgrounds. Uh, COVID has really put a unique shift in this. Uh, some of my colleagues were able to go over to uh, Oaxaca, Mexico, Carolyn Colomborn, uh, Dakota Mace, and uh, Roberto Mata, Torres Mata. So they went, I was, unfortunately I couldn't go uh, just for uh, reasons at the time. And so it's about the idea of one, collaboration, and the Day of the Dead was an important com- uh, component of this and experiencing that. And so I think their experience of being there is much different than the experience of, of those who, who weren't there. But the experience of death is ever present in this moment because of what we're living in within COVID. And so that's a unique challenge, I think. So John, is your primary medium print? I use printmaking as a, as a means to express ideas and thinking, and I, and I look at it almost like a sketchbook. I look at printmaking like a song as well. If you think about music and the idea of layering and pattern and repetition and, 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 and color in a way. So printmaking is all about those components, but for music, it's the same thing. So if I'm gonna make a heavy sound, really loud and I'm going to take on my press or on the screen printing I use primary screen printing if I come back and lay down a flat but I want to put a high kind of pitch in there so if I bring in a highlighted area with some nice line work and it gets very chaotic then I gotta think about, okay, well, I wanna bring those colors now. 
and I want it to be within tune. So you want the, the guitar for me is the same way. There's a, a way of approaching it where you're in tune and you're out of tune and there's a chaotic experience. And that's what I love about the relationship of printmaking and the guitar or music in general, but the idea of collaboration. So printmaking is really important to have others working together. If you're working on a print with others, a matter of fact, a few of these prints in the exhibition uh, that, uh, here in the School of Human Ecology is a collaborative print actually with, with Roberto, like the print up here in this corner. It's the, the, the lithograph layers were what Roberto put down. And then he basically is like, hey, you know, I'm done with this song. I don't think I want to use it. He gave those to me and said, do you want to do something to it? So I, I started layering colors on it. <laughs> put my images on it with his images, and then we're basically creating this whole new piece, a new, new song in a sense, a new print. John, that takes me back to your comment about community, the fact that you couldn't be there, yeah. but other people could be there, you're still communicating. Yeah. And it's, you know, the layering, the chaos, the bright notes, the high notes, that's all about like figuring out and working through what would you call that? Um, concerns of the community, design yeah. of the community, art of the community? Well, it, it, to me, it, it's crossing over and crossing. You know, it, it, the, there's a sense of boundaries that we create that uh, sometimes those boundaries are, are non-existent within creative communities because we have the need to create. And so, for instance, uh, Alvaro, um, um, who I'm collaborating here in this piece, um, Alvaro Torres, He's actually plays music and guitar based on the sketchbook I have right here. And the sketchbook is based on air, land, and water. And those are the things that we were thinking about conceptually. So we, convert, we, convert, we had a conversation over Zoom to kind of go around the theme or go about a theme that we wanted to work on. And so we took this guitar that I have right here that, I'm, that I've been playing while we're talking. <laughs> And, and Alvaro had never played a, um, one of these types of guitars, which is a uh, tuned down to D um, lap steel guitar. And so this guitar traveled with Roberto, Dakota, and Carolyn. They took this. I painted it here in Madison. They took it to Oaxaca, and they filmed um, Alvaro receiving this guitar, guitar, and he started to play it, plucking and playing it. And so there's little excerpts of that in the video that's going to be in the show. And so he created three songs, one about land, one about water, and the other one about air. And so I created the work in relationship to that. I created a video that is collaborative with his songs. And then at one point during the exhibition, I plan to do come in with my pedal steel guitar and set up in here and play along with the video with Elvaro playing and then film that. And that just transcends all time and space and everything. Exactly. It's still collaborating, but it's, it's we can't be together, but we will be. It'd be interesting to see what happens when you're in the same room. Yeah, I'm super excited because I can tell uh, when, when uh, Carolyn was texting me images 
of Alvaro when he was 18, 19, and he had his long hair and playing heavy metal music. It was like, oh my God, we're around the same age. It's like, it's exactly what I looked like when I was young, with dark hair and, you know, heavy metal guitar. And, and so we play very similar, but in a way we're, you know, we're, we're kindred brothers from different spaces from culture because of what we grew up with musically and, and where we come from in our backgrounds. It, you know, when I was talking to Roberto, this theme came out of this circular, this circle about how, you know, and I see circles in the work. I see circles, the guitar is covered with circles, but this idea that we enter in this community and we sort of all swirl around each other and we all get sort of this movement going together. And it's the idea of, do you stay within that circle or do you, like a sunspot sort of like spark off that circle? Yeah. You know, like, so how do you see yourself within it? Is it something that you feel like, now that this guitar has gone and come back, it's sort of like travel to a circle, the circle of the work. There's this, there's a lot of spheres and, and sort of swirling things happening within this new, I don't want to say newfound, but in this community that's now become a part of you. Yeah. So, so talk to me about like, where are you? Are you? Center, first, like where do you see yourself within this idea of the circle? That's a good question. Like the circle is such a symbolic uh, form and, and like the, the guitar traveling is a portion of that continuation and I, I see things as a continuation of life. So we, we, we live every day, we start at a starting, we're birthed into this wor world and we're at a starting point and then as we move through the world, we have to think of our ancestors and elders and uh, the people, the children, the youth, and then we move into the world of, of health and where we have health issues and we have to kind of figure out how to, to, to work through those and then mend our souls and then move on to the next level of where we're going to meet the ancestors and go to the next space. And so that continuation of life in a circle, we all experience it. And I think it's unique right at this moment that we think about it and talk about it more because we're living in it where we're losing people uh, at, a, at a rate we never experienced in our lifetime. And so I think that that's my feeling about the idea of this and the using music, but also using uh, art printmaking in particular as a way, as a device to kind of work through these experiences and share them and share them with other artists and collaborate with each other. John, can you tell me that this sketchbook, did it travel with the guitar? Did it also make that journey? Or is it something that you've kept in your hands this entire time? No, the big, the big important part of this was to not only take the guitar uh, to Alvaro, but also to take the sketchbook so that he could look at these drawings and then he could do an, a sound interpretation of the visuals that's created. So the video itself will have uh, the sketchbook in it. So the pages are turned and then on the stage, the sketchbook will be sitting on the stage. But the, whole, the, the big uh, idea of it too was to have Alvaro um, interpret by sound the visuals and the visuals are a combination of um, thinking about land, air, and water, and then how that affects us as humans and affects us in our communities. And then you talked about the circle earlier. Like, it's interesting, like this to me is some of the things I was talking about. Like this is actually a scaffolding in relationship to death. And it's, it's referencing that. 
but there's other components to this where it's referencing movement and air and flow. And so it's really unique to me to, to hear Alvaro interpret these visuals. And that's really exciting, a new experience for me, because I usually will do that with my music, but to hand it over and have him interpret that through his sound is incredible. And to me, it's an incredible experience. I haven't even laid any guitar down on his recording yet because I want to enjoy that for a while with the, with, 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 live with that for the moment. But then at one point I want to add the pedal steel to get used to playing with, with his, playing along with him in collaboration. And then when he gets here, we'll play live together. That's such, is it, I don't know if it's due to the current pandemic, I call it the cootie gate, if it's, if it's due to the pandemic, that we've learned how to communicate and how to be together yeah. in new ways. True, I think it's a, a, good, a good way to look at it because we, uniquely for artists, I think we've communicated this way in, 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 over time. Uh, any artist that has traveled, collaborated with other artists, the mechanisms that we're moving into, the isolation, and it's like a lot of artists love to be in their studios, they love to be working on something, the repetitive qualities, it's the time you have. It takes so much time to make art, and to make art that would be considered good art, and those questions of what is good, that value of what do you decide is good for making, but how do you take the time to actually discover what you can make in that time? And so this unique moment, even though it's, it's threatening and scary, there is a power in traveling in a way, power in being able to travel through the internet to experience uh, ideas with other um, musicians and artists and, and communicating in a different way. It would be interesting to see what the difference in what he would have played had he not actually had the book and just had images on a computer screen or on the phone. Oh, wow, I didn't think about it. Because when he had the book, he's actually handling it, and you can hear the pages turning here, like he's handling this material, which is a handmade book, uh, handmade paper, but you know the, the, he's experiencing that. And it also has like a smell of the glue, and so you're getting a visceral kind of experience of of the touch of an object. And, and I think that's the same thing with a guitar. Um, when he picked up the guitar, he was like, just sort of, sort of figuring it out. And then we all use harmonics. And in the video of him receiving the guitar, he started playing harmonics. And in one of, uh, several of the songs start out with harmonics. And so that idea of touch and tone and sound is the same thing with art, handmade art. And the fact that you've also touched these things. So in a sense, it's like a handshake across thousands of miles. Oh, yeah, I like that. It's a handshake. Yeah, it's, it's a long-term long -term and long-extended uh, welcoming.
And that's a wrap for WORT's live local news at 6. Your reporter tonight was Andy Barrow. Special thanks to feature contributors Jonathan Fields. Dylan Brogan engineered the show. Nate Wiggy helped produce this newscast. And Ms. Shali Pittman is the news director here at WORT. Thank you guys for listening. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton. And I'm your host, Stacey Harbaugh. You can listen to WORT on the go with the WORT app. And be sure to subscribe to the local news wherever you get your podcasts. Up next, it's a perpetual notion machine. Thanks for listening and good night.